What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans, joined once again by the boy Nathan Cush. How's it going? What's up, son? And Ash, uh, do you see I got my teeth done, all gold? Have you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well done, man. Yeah. How, how do you afford that? Oh, haven't you heard? <laughs> Adam Price, he uh, won the pledge leadership. Oh yeah, the um. Oh, did you get? Did you get that group group message? What that we're all loaded. Yeah, and independent now. Yeah. As as the prophecies foretold. <laughs> oh man, it's been a while since uh, our last podcast. Oh, God, I just had this. As soon as I said been a while, I had that. Um, I had like a little flashback to that. Remember that band Stained? They were no. like the acoustic version of Limp Bizkit. Like, <laughs> doing, doing new metal. There was that guy. But he, oh, yeah, he's got a song called Been a While. Horrible. That's in my head now. It was terrible. Um, that was used on the Adam Price um, <laughs> video soundtrack, wasn't it? Uh, it was shaking down. Yeah, I mean, people are sort of being expecting us to do a real sort of big um, post-mortem into the Plaid leadership election. And obviously, I mean, I wrote a blog on it. And as you all know, we, we're, we're sort of fans of Leanne. But... What I will, I mean, there's no point really. I mean, it's fairly obvious what's happened. I mean, if you think, if you listen to our our live episode with Rob Griffiths, I mean, Rob Griffiths and Gareth Miles, you know, both in the Communist Party, were members of Plaid Cymru. You know, Rob was their policy officer, you know, paid policy officer in Parliament. And he's said a number of times about the struggles, the real struggles he had, you know, trying to sort of make Plaid a vehicle for socialist thought. Um, and he said in our live thing, I think, you know, regardless of how, you know, you know, the fact that Plaid sort of you know, formally claimed to be a socialist party, they were never really, it was never really enthusiastically backed. And he, there's been a long list of people who have been disaffected with Labour for, you know, because they're in Wales, they're corrupt and stinking. And, and then he sort of moved to Plaid Cymru and think that Plaid are going to be the vehicle for socialism. You know, Kerry Evans... Gwyneth Williams, you know, Raymond Williams, me. Yeah. <laughs> All great. For, for a month, um, like. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, Rob's, Rob Griffith said in that live episode, you know, he felt that Leanne was kind of like a prisoner of her party and that what this demonstrates to me, I mean, Leanne probably won't even agree with this, but I mean, what this shows to me uh, is that Plaid will never be a vehicle for socialist transformation because if you look at how she's been treated and if you look at, it, it's clear that they've seen Leanne you know, a working class, you know, non-Welsh-speaking woman from South Wales, what it should have been was the start of this long, protracted battle to become hegemonic and, and to sort of win in the areas that Plaid have never won in. But it's clear that they resented her, I think, from day one. They didn't just didn't like her. In my opinion, that's because she wasn't sort of nationalistic enough. All the trials that came out during the leadership election sort of kept calling her Labour light, as if she, basically, I think that was because she was a social democrat. And it's just it's just clear to me that they'll never be. I mean, I mean, in many ways, it's been really useful. I mean, it, it, I was very upset for Leanne because I think she's genuinely a fantastic person and a, a real rarity within politics. You know, to have the fact that she's a well, that was a draw, wasn't it? I mean, she's just a normal person. Yeah, I mean, she's the one sort of politician you can speak to, and and everyone that speaks to her comes away thinking, oh my god, she's actually just a normal person. You know, she's not someone that has an agenda. She's not someone that focus groups every answer. She's just you know looks at you, someone just because they're like could be you, both and, like and yeah, and what you get is what she, you see. She's genuine, and that was and unfortunately that was being spun by people within Plaid as some form of weakness. You know that and and, and what's really pissing me off is the way that people who spend the entire campaign you know, smearing her, essentially, you know, saying, like, that she was, you know, pro-Brexit, that, you know, she was being terrible for the Welsh language community, yada, yada, yada. I mean, there, there were so many. I mean, we probably should have sort of documented it. I think some people uh, have, mind. And now people have come, you know, and now it's like, oh, thanks, Leanne, deal, Leanne, hashtag, and then it's like, it's time for unity. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, 
it's obviously diff- difficult coming from a an anarchist background and never having having experience of political parties. But no, I w- I wouldn't want to be unified with those people. I mean, I'm obviously I've you know I've I would leave. You know, <laughs> um, I'm not saying you should. But but no, but do, I mean, I just, I, I don't know, this concept of, you know, all coming together, it's just completely yeah. alien to me. Why would you want to be in a party with people who treat you like that? Um, and who treat someone like, someone like Leanne, who's as good as Leanne, in the way they've treated her. And now they sort of come back and... Have, or refer to, you know, actual um, social issues as being niche. Oh, what are they going to do now? Oh, who, they're probably going to expect you to, you know, soldier on and, oh, hi Leanne, do you mind like winning, you know, holding mm. the Ronda for us? Yeah, it's no, been... Ironically a, as well, they'll, they'll, they'll use you know to paint themselves as being progressive they'd be like are we you know we've had a, a woman as a leader but what they'll do they'll absorb we'd boot her out, i like- mean if they had i mean what they'll do if they had any i mean if they had any sense at all adam price and his team will have to absorb you know this the sort of the social issues and the progressive causes and the policies the amazing you know anti-austerity and radical policies that leanne wood has consistently espoused and if they don't then Will they though? Because there's such, such they... a big margin, you won by. It's not like he has to kind of keep the party together in terms of you know. It's not like she was a close second. She got well. I, th- I mean, until now, I think you know people have always said, well, you know, like they'll probably think, well, where have people like Leanne and where have the socialists implied got to go? I mean, they they won't go to Labour because most people, most socialists join Plaid precisely because they're disillusioned with Labour, so they probably wouldn't go back. But you know, watch this space. Maybe there'll be something that. Um, maybe there'll be new progressive, uh, you know, non-political party movements forming in Wales, as they have done across the UK and, and well, not across the UK, but across Europe. But it's it's good. I mean, it, it's I'm I'm really upset for her, and I'm really upset for all the socialists implied, and all the people who've been attracted into politics mm. by Leanne Wood. You know, the people who've seen Leanne Wood and thought, oh, you know, maybe politics is for me. You know, uh, sort of the, mar- the the groups that were sort of hitherto marginalised. But I find it a relief because for me it's like the final, um, the buck stops here. You know, if Leanne Wood can't transform Plaid, you know, if they've had a socialist, that's the most left-leaning leader they've ever had. If she can't transform Plaid into a a socialist vehicle, no one can. So it's time to abandon any sort of illusions we had that Plaid might be a progressive force for sort of socialism and, and radical policies in Wales because they're not. I mean, it's the parliamentary group hated hated her. It's clear most of the assembly group resented her. Um, and other members do, I guess. And you know, and from the result, it's clear that a lot of the membership didn't identify with her in her policies. And so, whilst people are presenting this as this new dragon has been awakened, it, it, thing, it, yeah. it, it, well, it's not a new period in the history of Plaid. Leanne Wood was a new period in the history of Plaid. What this is is a return to what Plaid have done for the last hundred years. You know, and I don't agree. I mean, this is the weird thing about Adam Price. I mean, I've never met him. Apparently, he's a really nice guy. Oh yeah, and a lot and a lot of people have said that you know he you know obviously is a smart, a very smart and capable person, and he speaks and he he has many strengths, including that. I mean, he I watched some a great couple of, a clip the other day when he just hammered Ken Skates on you know the fact that Ken Skate, the, the Welsh government are almost openly engaging in criminality. You know that uh, I don't know if you heard about the Welsh government um, are not are refusing to divulge whether they gave Aston Martin any further cash for. Uh, <laughs> R and D because all, that all would, of uh, all the Welsh government members now driving around and asked them. But you know they, they refused. They refused like, to divulge that information because um, what it would basically mean was that the Welsh government have falsely boosted Aston Martin's share price, and obviously the Welsh government are shareholders. And Adam Price, you know, hammered Ken Skates. So Adam any, Price uh, is very good in that he he he'll he, you know in many ways he'll take the fight. I think 
to people like Ken Skates and the rest of those idiots in the in the cabinet. What? But you, I, mean, I said I've I've picked through the policies with a fine tooth comb, and there's a couple of good ones there. But the rest of it is about wealth generation and raising Wales GDP and GVA. And as we've talked about on numerous economics podcasts, those things just aren't going to do anything to improve my life. They're not going to improve your life. They're not going to improve the lives of working class people. You know, there's there's nothing in there about more money for the NHS. There's nothing really in there about, you know, um, reversing cuts to public services. There was something about um, education that kind of got dropped, didn't it? Oh, the income yeah i mean that's the other worrying thing is that you know there's been a lot of flip-flopping by adam price's camp on you know income tax and uh, i it's just a lot of policies coming out you know um some of, some of which are workable some of which are not are definitely not workable but the interesting thing is if you read the welsh government's economic blueprint and its focus it's all about wealth creation you know it's all about turning universities into research and development hubs it's all about you know the welsh government proposes an infrastructure commission adam price proposes an infrastructure commission i just don't see it at all as a radical as radical socialist policies i think it's essentially trickle down economics um what what are your predictions now proved wrong what are your predictions now for the for plight well i don't really care (laughs) that's that's the thing now i mean i I couldn't give a shit i mean the reason i was sort of uh i held out any hope for plight at all was because leanne was the figurehead and she's so popular and obviously we did our we did our episode on you know the change we need her blueprint which i still think is is not something that should happen it's something that has to happen you know this idea of degrowth and you know sort of decentralized socialism and community-owned green assets and so on and so forth these aren't things that are it's clear that a lot of people imply just see that as pie in the sky as things which aren't workable and they're so wedded to this paradigm our current economic paradigm but the the other thing the leadership election shows me is that i mean we had beef about this on our twitter account but i mean the suspicion for a lot of people and the thing that have been has been thrown applied consistently is applied to a bourgeois party and in its most crude terms there are a lot of rich people implied i mean there are a lot of very affluent people who are doing very well out of the current economic settlement who don't have the same urgency in their day-to-day life i'm sorry they don't um and how important it is to change the system i mean it's impossible to make rent it's impossible to get a house i heard a story the other day about a friend's father who had a you know a stroke in a pub in Porthcawl. And the ambulance took took four hours, like four hours from Bridgend to get to him. And, oh, and, well, it, and it made the situation a, a lot worse because there just weren't any ambulances. And so, you well, know... Well, it started last year that happened to my grandfather, didn't it? And yeah, and, and like, you know, my, you know, obviously my sister is a, works in the NHS. You know, my parents have been teachers. You know, I've been in education research. You see, I mean, for a lot of people, the idea of, you know, more money for schools, more money for the NHS. These aren't, I mean, these aren't abstract things. These are people's lives, you know, like people come back. And that's the impression I get. I mean, we, we talk about like ending austerity and sorting these things out. And I think I get the impression that people just, it's like, oh, well, you know, that would be nice. But, you know, the main thing is to create wealth. And it's like, well, that's bollocks. You know, I mean, you know, ending austerity is my number one priority. And I don't want it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've said on numerous occasions, I couldn't give a shit about living in independent Wales if it's just going to be the same as it is now, if, you know, you know, if there's still going to be a massive problem with homelessness. Yeah, know, if, but if, they're all be begging in Welsh. You know, if there's still going to be massive staffing crisis in the NHS, you know, nurses completely overstretched, you know, coming home in floods of tears because there's not enough staff on the ward because of, of cuts and, and, you know, if there's not enough ambulances. And, and, and these things, it, it's clear to me that these things, which are my main concerns as a socialist, and that's the main concerns of the political culture I've sort of grown up in, they are not the main concerns of a lot of people in play. They just aren't. They just aren't. They're just. They're just secondary. It's like, oh yeah, you know. And they might tag on a concern about, you know, anti-poverty strategies, but that's not the main. It's not their main focus. Their focus is 
creating a wealthy, independent Wales, and that's just just, just doesn't interest me. It doesn't appeal to me. Yet. So what do we think applied? Don't know. Good luck to them. That's fine. You know, they can do their own thing. We'll do ours. <laughs> that's a nice cheery introduction. Yep. So this week we talked to Tom Mills about his work on the BBC. Okay, so we're delighted to be joined today by Dr. Tom Mills. Tom is a lecturer in sociology at Aston University, and we're here today to discuss his fantastic book, The BBC, The Myth of a Public Service. So Tom has also written extensively on Islamophobia and media reform, but we're here basically today to discuss his groundbreaking work on the BBC, and in particular the BBC's relationship to the British state. So Tom, welcome, thanks for coming. Um, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, why write the book? Um, well, I was actually, I was original reason I wrote the book, or at least the original kind of personal impetus, was partly to do with Iraq. I mean, people of my age, I guess, were quite typically politicised by by the war. And one thing I wanted to make sense of was in, a, in a, the discussions of the Iraq war, it seemed like there was something complicated going on with the BBC. I mean, on the one hand, it was being attacked by the government over its coverage. It was claimed to be sort of an anti-war organisation by Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair and the rest of them. On the other hand, there was scholarly research showing that its output tended to be very pro-war. It tended to be more, um, have less critical voices on, more sort of establishment sources than some of the other broadcasters, and um, including Channel 4 and even the American broadcasters. So it seemed like this was an interesting organization to, to get to grips with. I mean, there was a lot of existing re- historical research on the BBC, but I, what I felt was missing was a sense of the BBC, the sort of mechanics of the BBC as an institution, particularly one which took on board some extensive research on the BBC's reporting. So what I want to try and do is sort of get under the bonnet and understand this 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 institution and make sense of its output. Now, something changed when, and so I registered for a PhD, which was titled, working title was something like an institutional study of the BBC or something like that, I don't know. Anyway, when I registered for the, PG, uh, for the um, PhD, which was a decade ago, Lehman Brothers more or less collapsed uh, at the first sort of, meeting, I can't remember what the event was, but anyway, and at that point, I thought, actually, a more interesting thing to look at than the BBC's war reporting, which has been extensively researched, was to look at its economics reporting, because it seemed to me that there hadn't been much critical coverage of the economy and and the business, and also that even in my living memory, there seemed to have been a shift to to more sort of pro-business perspective. So, Basically, I shifted then away from war and onto business reporting and economics reporting, which was the focus of my research. And then when I finished my PhD, um, I approached Verso about a book and they wanted to do a more general sort of account of the BBC. And then that, so that basically ended up producing the book that you mentioned. Um, the last two chapters of my own research and the rest of it is uh, other bits and pieces that I did in the early stage of my PhD and collating other research to just give an account of the sort of institution that the BBC is, how it's how it functions and what its relationship is with political and economic power, basically. Now, why did I think that was important? I mean, I, I guess the simple answer is I don't think, despite everything that's written on the BBC, I don't think it, at that stage at least it was a very well understood organisation. And I think partly that's to do with the sort of, there's something about the common sense of the BBC where actually all a lot of the scholarly evidence doesn't seem to inform either sort of elite discussions about what the BBC is or what it does. And I think to a certain extent, you know, public opinion, or I think that's very debatable, it's a difficult thing to get to grips with. And, you know, maybe we can talk about this later. But when I started, there was a sort of common sense on the left, which I felt at that stage, at least at odds with, with what I intuitively and from my reading thought the BBC was. 
and maybe I think that's changed a bit in the last, it's one of the interesting things that's changed around the conversations on the BBC, um, the attitudes on the left. At that stage, the sort of common sense was, oh, this is a left-wing institution and it needs defending against Murdoch, you know, and as a sort of unease about a kind of a critical left position on what the BBC is. I think that's one of the most interesting things about, your, well, the introduction to your book. I was so glad that you wrote it. And it's interesting thing that the British left and the Labour left in particular, you know, regardless of what the BBC do and their output, still have this sort of benign view of the BBC as this sort of incredible thing of uh, impartiality or whatever that must, that must be defended. And I think people, what people tend to do is sort of just compare it to the lowest common denominator, sort of commercial broadcasting in the States, um, and say, well, you know, compared to that, it's fantastic, and look at its sort of its global um, reputation and so on. But what I think is that you know, the British left in particular don't really have a good understanding of, of state power more generally. And the BBC is just one part of that. One of the great things about the book is that you engage with Ralph Miliband and, you know, the sort of the nature of the British state. And if you look at debates now about Corbynism, it's almost like that whole debate on the nature of the British state has been completely submerged. I mean, I know that Navarra did something with Leo Panitch quite lately, but it's really good, I think. And your book is a really important counterweight to this sort of almost naive attitude the left has towards the things that I think I, I sort of have a few nods towards you know Marxists or state theory in the book um what happened with the book is that a lot of the sort of more overtly scholarly material got taken out and I don't think that's a bad thing because necessarily although it, it might be for getting academic brownie points but it, the book I think lets some of the evidence speak for itself the other thing I would say about the state theory and I think it's interesting to sort of see the book, or at least the evidence that it uses as a, as a way of talking about state theory. I mean, one of my frustrations with the debates around the state, and I, I agree with you, there's a sort of something of a lack of interest in this uh, around um, Corbynism. But also, I think in, in the more developed state Marxist state theory, there's very little empirical attention to what these institutions actually do. And I think this is very surprising because most the, the one thing that we know about states actually the one thing the states do is they keep very meticulous records. And yeah. at least in Britain, although particularly when it comes to colonial atrocities, those tend to get destroyed. It, for the more mundane section of the state, you've got huge amounts of, of data to make use of. It's much easier researching the state than it is, you know, BAE systems or HSBC or anything like that. And yet state theory has no doesn't seem to have any interest in empirically what these institutions are and what they do. And that is one of the things I was trying to do with the book is take an institution which we know a lot about. And I got some of the information through Freedom of Information, some of it through the 30-year rule, which most of that didn't actually end up in the book. But I also looked at the BBC during the 1970s, how it, how it operated during the period of political, social, economic crisis um, and how it orientated itself towards the state. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can see the book. I mean, this is another question, you know, it's like, you know, is the BBC a state broadcaster, right? Um, which, again, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that useful a question, but it, it's a real taboo in, you know, British public life and even in academia to describe the, the BBC as such, right? But again, it just shows how, how limited the kind of understanding of the state is in these kinds of discussions, right? Because, Absolutely. you know, what does that really mean? Um, Say Gene Seaton, who is the official historian of the BBC for a while, will say, you know, that, and most journalists would say this, the BBC isn't a state broadcaster, it's a public service broadcaster, there's a difference. You know, but again, if you mean a state broadcaster is just a broadcaster where the people are appointed by the government, it's not quite that, but it's a different type of state 
institution, I think, um, uh, with implications there for, for, for what it does. Um, yeah. To come back to the, the original point, also, I was sorry. going to say, did you um, point out at the start that uh, it originally was was private and then it was kind of um, taken on by the state? Yeah, so it, it starts out as a sort of um, state-sponsored corporate conglomerate, basically, of uh, various communications and, and electronic and, I mean, in some cases, arms companies and sort of logistical companies, you know, so that around that time, I mean, Marconi was the leader, but there was Westinghouse and various other corporations in the 1920s, which were sort of, you know, these were like the Google and Facebooks and the rest of it of their day. And they've made a lot of money out of the British military industrial complex in the same way as um, these American corporations had. And what happened there was that the that they wanted a, a, a patent for this technology. They wanted to take it to a market. And the way the British state responded to that was to, well, actually, they wanted to sort of avoid a monopoly. What They, they were a bit torn in, about what to do because they wanted to give Marconi a monopoly. But at the same time, they felt like it would make more sense uh, in terms of rational organization to, to collate all of these corporate interests into a big corporate state-sponsored joint monopoly basically and that became the bbc which was a limited company at that time um you're representing these the, the shareholders of these companies and yeah and then and then over the course of the 1920s that leads up to 1927 when the bbc becomes uh, a public company or a royal gets its royal charter so yeah it, that, that, that's the kind of origin of the bbc but you know like actually a lot of state functions do start out as as private functions i mean we're talking like early state development say the victorian period you know like say the police for example yeah what you see there is a a, a rationalization of existing sort of social practices which are at that point sort of seen as you know corrupt residues of feudalism that then get rationalized by the centralizing state and Actually, John Reef, who's the founding father of the BBC, you know, is is seen to be very influenced by that sort of same Victorian rationalising, moralising sort of tradition that underpins a lot of British state development. One of the interesting things about the early, the, well, we'll talk about the general strike that because I think that's a really important period that you identify in, the, and it sort of is illustrative, I guess, in the in, in the nature of the BBC and its relationship with the state. But you sort of said how fast the BBC goes from this conglomerate of sort of private enterprises, which are as you said, they, they create this foundation basically to sell their product, right? <coughs> to sell the stuff, by the state, like. yeah, the, the stuff they're making. But you say within a very short period of time, it becomes this institution which receives a royal charter. And then there's a great passage, you say it, it places it, you know, having a royal charter, it places it in one of those things that's almost above politics. Like there's institutions mm-hmm. in the UK like the Bank of England or like the City of London or things like that. It's something that sort of floats, floats above politics and is therefore beyond you know, it's, it, as you said, it's it's the development of the development of the modern British civil society, isn't it? Alongside yeah. the development, really, of the of the modern British state. Just to briefly, while we're on it, to talk about the Royal Charter. I mean, yeah. I, this sort of blew, <clears throat> blew my mind when I was reading it. I mean, I've been researching the British state for a while and things. I didn't actually really know what <laughs> Royal Charter was, and it's kind of this <laughs> spooky thing that basically it's essentially accountable. The BBC is accountable technically to the Crown, yeah. but not but not Parliament. <clears throat> just like those other organisations like the Bank of England and stuff. While we're on the sort of founded foundations of the BBC, the first chapter you deal with the BBC and the general strike of 1926, and that's kind of the first major event that the BBC covers. And one of the instances, you, you basically argue that this, this period and how the BBC deals with the general strike of 1926 defines the BBC's 
independence vis-a-vis the British state, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not the first thing the BBC covers. What what happens? I mean, actually, I think the first thing the BBC reports sort of reports on live is the the coronation. Actually, I mean, significantly, this is the point at which the BBC assumes a a huge national importance because there's a strike and the newspapers disappear, right? So the radio becomes hugely important. So that's how that becomes people's primary source of news. the other two sources of news are two newspapers, one produced by the government and one produced by the TUC, i.e. the two propaganda um, outfits for either side of the, of the strike. So you can see the BBC sort of positions itself in the middle of this dispute. What, what, what happens is that, I mean, the, the sort of conventional history of this, which you'll get from sort of Nick Robinson and the rest of them, is that, okay, the BBC tried its hardest under difficult circumstances and it wasn't really impartial ultimately, but then gradually... Um, you know, this was a sort of bumpy start on the road to um, genuine independence that, you know, it's never quite clear when that independence actually happens. What I think is, I mean, I think this is a complete misreading of what happens. I think that there's an understanding amongst the political elite and the cabinet at that point that to keep the BBC in that sort of grey area between an instrument of the government and civil society or whatever you want to call it, like genuine independence, is exactly the best place to keep it. So there's this debate, it's very well known, you know, amongst historians of British broadcasting between um, Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister at the time, and Winston Churchill, I mean, and others actually, but those are sort of seen as the two sort of representatives of these two sides. And Churchill, who's the sort of gung-ho, you know, anti-workers side of the cabinet, wants to take the BBC under direct control, make it this great sort of instrument of propaganda or whatever. And and Baldwin is the much more savvy political operator, and he realises that if they just publicly take the BBC under direct government control, nobody's going to believe it. And actually, the best thing they could do would be to keep the BBC under the constant threat of being completely... Um, taken over. Now, at this point, the BBC's in the process of negotiating with the government for its royal charter. And actually, at that point, you know, the the people involved in that are the people who it's reporting to in the general strike, the post office, postmaster general. Who the post postmaster general, the witchfinder general. And yeah. <laughs> <I laughs> just thing is, uh, yeah, assume it's the I, same thing. Like The thing is with this position, by the way, is that, I mean, I always say this when I give talks, and I don't know if I do in the book, but the post office, because it's such a great institution, you sort of forget what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's the communicative infrastructure of the greatest imperial power in history. You know, that's how you have to think about this. And but what what happens at the BBC actually isn't just that the BBC is not very, you know, some of its reporting is slightly misleading. It, uh, it does the usual thing of selecting voices. Certain people aren't allowed to appear. So very famously, the Archbishop of Canterbury isn't allowed to give a speech where he fails to condemn. The, the workers to going on strike, whereas the Archbishop of Westminster, who's the representative of the Catholic Church, who condemns the strike as a sin against God, is broadcast, right? Now, that's very well known. What's less well discussed, actually, is that the leading figures in the BBC move into the Admiralty, which is the sort of centre of British military power, right? British military power is, like, you know, through controlling trade through the seas. Um, so this is like, you know, all of the American media moving into the Pentagon, which I yeah, think is yeah, yeah. Which to be fair doesn't sound that outlandish, but like it's not well known um, amongst histories of the BBC. It's also not that well known that that John Reef. I mean, he 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 edited Baldwin's speeches during the strike. But the most remarkable thing, like when it came to being read out, he was just like, "Oh, I didn't say that at all." 
<laughs> he, he was just tweaking it and um, polishing um, the speeches, you know, um, uh, to make them best sound better. I don't remember agreeing yeah, with and then he, he, he remarks at one stage that we should have had a little plaque behind the desk because it was so important in breaking the strike. That's John Reeve, the who becomes first BBC's first director general. The other thing he did, which I, I sort of dug out from a book that never seemed to be cited by anyone else, I think I found it in a book in the 1970s or something, was that he read out, um, at the, when the strike finishes, the, John Reeve, who became director general of the BBC, reads out um, a message and from number 10, and he says he thanks the Prime Minister and God for steering the country through this difficult time. And then he reads out the words to Jerusalem, and he, he describes this, and he says how it, when he got to the last verse, he got the, the BBC choir to sing in the background as he read the final verse to, to Jerusalem. So this is the kind of, you know, this is how the BBC actually conducted itself during the general strike, and and the, the extent to which the BBC departed from what it was supposed to be doing, which was actually to report impartially on the strike, is completely misrepresented in a lot of the literature. It's partly because it did soberly report on stuff. That's the first thing. It did. It did allow the TEC to um, to have its voice heard, and it did maintain a sort of official independence. And then, so basically, what I argue, and obviously I think correctly, is that this tells us something about the, B the, the BBC and its relationship to the state. It, it's not something, it's not some sort of slightly embarrassing historical episode. It tells us something about the organisation that the BBC comes. It, it, it changes a huge amount, of course, between like 1920s and the present day, but it still lives in that, that strange world between genuine independence and officialdom. And I think the, the general strike bears out. What most people argue, by the way, is that, oh, yeah, that's probably true. The BBC was an establishment organisation, but maybe at some point, either in the 50s or the 60s or maybe the 70s or possibly the early 80s, it became independent and then maybe didn't a bit in that, the Thatcher period and then did later. You know, it's, it's, it's very unclear at what point. Yeah, or, or maybe after Iraq is, is the sort of probably the, the now the widely sort of accepted liberal narrative of people who are more critical of the BBC is that, um, yeah, after the Hutton inquiry. Yeah, so that this this period, you know, the general strike, as you said, I mean, it is kind of illustrative and, and really useful for understanding the BBC. The first thing I want to talk about is this idea of precarious independence. I mean, essentially, what you're saying is that the BBC is independent to the extent that it's never going to, it's it, it's always for the national interest. And it's always essentially for the government. So it's never deviating from the official line. Essentially, it's it's independent because it'll never say anything that upsets the government. Essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think. We need to be a little bit careful about this because the BBC does say things that upset yeah. the government, right? So, like, um, I, I think all of the instincts that people have about the BBC being biased and the rest of it are essentially correct. But yeah. also, when smug people at the BBC say, oh, well, actually, we, um, we gave give Theresa yeah. May a hard time, in fact, that they're not, that's not disingenuous. They genuinely do do that. Um, what The best way that to, to express what the BBC does, I think, is to say that it will tend to defer to a sort of spectrum of elite opinion, um, and they will have a sense of what what is acceptable opinion and, and, and what isn't. And I think it's also true that, I mean, in fact, we know this from extensive research, that the BBC will lean towards the government a day, particularly in its news reporting. And that's not very surprising, because those are... This, in terms of resources and position within the British state, those are the voices that predominate. And then you've got the opposition, which traditionally would be given, you know, some sort of place within the BBC. So 
in terms of it deferring to the government, I mean, it, it's leading towards the government, it's deferring to the establishment. So that, that's basically the thesis of the book, um, which is slightly different. So it, it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the BBC is simply pro-Tory when the Tories in government, but what the evidence seems to suggest is that the BBC will lean slightly more to the right under a right-wing government than it will lean to the left under a left-wing government. And I think the reason for that is that the broader establishment doesn't change, right? So like when the new Labour were in power, there were elements of sort of left-wing opinion there. Um, and I think sections of the establishment moved more towards the liberal left, but the centre of gravity is still with, the, you know, the business business elites and, and the tabloids and the rest of it. And that sort of works its way through BBC coverage. Do you think this was, um, as you said, particularly illustrated during the 80s with the rise of neoliberalism? And, you know, you wrote about how that kind of sapped into, like, you know, the the newsroom and they'd have like specific shows purely on business and purely on finance yeah so well actually it, it wasn't really during the, the thatcher period i mean uh, in most of the, the scholarship on this the, there's a lot of focus on the bbc um and its relationship with the thatcher government and the reason is that the bbc had a very uneasy relationship with the government during that period and it led to the resignation of Seamus Milne's dad Alistair Milne and as director general and this this followed a series of very public sort of spats between the right wing right wing you know uh, neoliberal government but it wasn't just about neoliberalism owners was also a real pushback against the BBC on its um foreign relation reporting and its reporting in Northern Ireland security issues and the rest of it so Anyway, the, the change when it came to economics reporting was mostly in the very late Thatcher period from around 87 with the arrival of John Burt, who was director general in the 1990s. And actually, the key period was post-Thatcher. And the thing is, yeah, a lot of the liberal scholarship focuses on the Thatcher period because I think they're much more comfortable with the idea of tension between the BBC and the government or at least, let's say, more attentive to that, because that's what is seen in liberal journalism as, as, as um, undermining the, the ability of journalists to do their job. Now, what I'm interested in as a sociologist isn't just that, but how does the institutional culture change, and that, and how does that then have impact on the BBC's reporting, which is what my PhD thesis is examining. That happens later, and it's an under-researched sort of period in the 1990s into the, uh, the noughties, where there's a shift towards pro-business um, reporting. Why this is important is that in 2008, when the crisis hits, the, the BBC has this whole sort of infrastructure of uh, economics and business reporting that, that, that basically forms the explanatory frameworks, if you like, that then allow them to explain the crisis. And of course, as we all know, they, they, they explain explain it in a certain way that it gives the, the Tories a strategic advantage to blame Labour for overspending, pursue their austerity agenda. And you can see that in the polling, you know, uh, the, the, the Conservatives are very successful in misinforming people about the nature of the economic crisis. And I don't think it's too outlandish to suggest that the BBC, with its kind of influence in current affairs and, and news, has played some role in that. The other thing, before we move back to the Thatcherism <coughs> In the general strike period, you write about the BBC sort of versus the traditional model of propaganda and how the BBC sort of perceives itself. I thought that was fascinating when you said that the BBC obviously don't feel that they're, you know, John Reith, etc. used to think that propaganda was essentially the dissemination of falsehoods and just lies, whereas you said that what the BBC essentially do is the strategic selection and presentation of information. 
Um, mm. And there's a quote by, I think you said, the chief engineer, who was sort of shocked to go be in a, a meeting and see the BBC sort of selecting, this is what we're going to talk about, and we're just going to sort of not talk about these things. So it's not an outright lie or saying this has happened when it hasn't. It's just like marginalising certain voices and, and privileging others. Like yeah, exactly. I mean, the again, like, um, I think... We should be a little bit careful about what we're claiming here. So that, that particular example from the general strike was explicitly propagandistic in the sense that you had a state sure. institution um, censoring things, which the public didn't know were censored, and selecting reports, right? So that was clearly, I mean, I, I think it's hard to see that that isn't an example of deliberate propaganda by an interested party, right? Now, I would slightly resist seeing the BBC as a propagandistic organisation because I think for yeah, me, propaganda implies um, interest and intent of some sort. Mm. But, of course, in routine editorialising and selecting particular voices or whatever, yeah. as you say, the, this, this allows particular perspectives to predominate and encourages people to draw certain conclusions and the rest of it. In terms of the propaganda stuff, I mean, it was interesting, actually, that there were, there were, there were people at that that sort of generation that who had come out of the First World War, who, who who had came in and out of the BBC, who had worked in wartime propaganda, and this reflects a, a broader history actually in the United States. You know where people in PR and communications, and particularly in academic work around communications, had essentially were involved in the sort of science of trying to influence people. Now. I'm not saying that's what the BBC was involved in, but if you look at it, you do see an interesting crossover, and it's very clear in the, in the case of the general strike that, yeah, you're, you're, you're seeing propaganda at work, which somehow doesn't fit into a very British version of propaganda, right? So, yeah, Reef says quite explicitly, you know, the Nazis, uh, well, he doesn't say the Nazis, because they're not around at that stage, but, you know, there's a sort of German version of propaganda that later people start to associate with the Nazis. You know, they use outright lies, but the thing is, most uh, there's a particular breed of uh, you know propaganda. If you're a good propagandist, you don't do that anyway. What you do is you try and select facts which will serve your interests, and and then you know it's very easy to try and misinform people just by yeah selecting flat facts, le leading out particular sort of context. Uh, I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I think most journalists would agree with that, right? Except that, in, in, except it maybe in the most sort of belligerent mood where the, the, they seem to sort of maintain this this idea that you know you can be completely impartial or objective <laughs> eddie marson school of journalism <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> it, it is weird twitter is such an amazing portal into the sort of the collective psyche of the british media and this this genuine diehard belief that they are sort of neutral on the both things but, but i mean that allows us to sort of move to the present day a bit tom because i mean one of the things that happened on twitter the other day the bbc tweeted out that graphic of like sort of the voices they've had on question time and they've obviously been under a lot of pressure because it's quite clear to most people on the left that you know of late it's really got a bit it's noticeably right wing you know like Farage is on all the time the um I forget that right wing think tank what's it called? there's um the you know the pro free market one that always seems to be economic affairs yeah they constantly seem to be cropping up sort of calling for this like low tax haven so the BBC were obviously quite they know that they're getting heat, but would you say? I mean, how would you judge the current you know, that statement about omitting things and privileging current uh, particular voices and you know marginalising certain ones? How? I mean, obviously, yeah. question time is the most obvious place where yeah. it's you know you can look at the panel and and count. Um, but what would you say? How, how would you gauge or sum up the current environment? So they. Um... 
if you look at that graphic that they put out, you see a sort of perfect party political balance, right? Now, I think in most cases, the BBC will take that balance, sort of balance very, very seriously. Um, so I, I've no reason to disbelieve their statistics. I mean, I know that um, Phil Burton Cartlidge is doing a paper on this, which will be out soon, and then we'll we have some more rigorous research on that particular question. But more generally, I think most studies will find, broadly speaking, a kind of party political balance on those kinds of things, because that's very easy to do. You can count something, yeah. right? But the interesting question about that is, what about the other category, right? What, who, who are the people in sort of civil society um, who are seen to be the go-to voices, right? Why are the Institute of Economic Affairs on all the time? Why aren't there more, more voices from the left? Well, I think there's different things going on here. First of all, the BBC um, has always orientated itself towards Westminster coverage, right? And the balance of forces within the parliamentary Labour Party is, is, is traditionally where they would look. So when they define left and right, they think of it in part of the political terms. So if you look at something like the Daily Politics, which Alex Nunns has been keeping tabs on, yeah. um, because he's on the left, he would see someone like Jocko Munar as, as being a centrist, um, not being on the left. The political spectrum is sort of a, it's a very contentious thing, right? But the, I don't think it's, I think it's fair to say that the, the political elite are not popular in the country and are seen about, as out of touch, right? Now, to be fair to the BBC, they were very aware of that. that you know, they were conscious of it in the early noughties. So this idea that, like, Brexit took them by surprise, I mean, I personally don't find that very convincing, actually. A lot of them were worried about distrust and anger towards politicians very early on. Um, the reason they were worried about that is because people like Nick Robinson are very close to these people. I mean, Nick Robinson describes himself as part of the creaky Westminster machine or something. And they, you know, they see it. If, if, if you think of yourself as a political reporter at the BBC, the fact that people aren't interested in politics anymore would obviously worry you, right? I think, and this is more an impression than based on any proper research, my sense is that the BBC tried to reach out to the public in a very clumsy way, which which meant that the sort of Farageism was seen as a more authentic expression of public opinion. So in the sort of BBC world, and I think this speaks to their sort of general social class from which these people come and and or, or at least operate in, the, the 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 division is between sort of you know middle class liberals and sort of working class reactionaries. And you can see that in how, how, why is that? Well, there's lots of things, I think, which will lead to these kinds of impressions. I mean, it's partly the metropolitan nature of the BBC and where they live and all the rest of it. It's partly how remote, like, you are as a journalist, which isn't any different, by the way, to, to my profession, particularly. But also, there's the, the, the role of the tabloids. You know, if you think about the political economy of the media within which the BBC operates, you have organisations like The Guardian and The Financial Times, and then you've got the populist press, which is still dominated by, by the right. So I think they sort of see this political spectrum as between, you know, sort of liberal left to conservative right. And that, that's how they balance it. So there's that. There's a sort of formal kind of notion of party political balance. And they're very aware of this. So, you know, they did a report years back about we need to have a more sophisticated way of approaching impartiality. And they said we can't just say it's just left and right. We need to have 
I mean, they had some sort of weird uh, metaphor, something about like, I don't know if it's a clock or a sundial or something. But the point is that they said, oh, the point of actually, if you read what they're supposed to do with due impartiality, they're supposed to make sure that no significant, of opinion, no significant strain of opinion in society is unrepresented, right? So that includes people on the left. And it's, I think the strange thing is, why is it when with the developments around Corbynism, why hasn't the BBC seemed to have been more responsive to that? And I think, you know, it's, it's not a simple question. I think it's a combination of a, set of a sort of inertia that exists in the broader political system of which they are part, you know. And that's why I, I think it's important when we talk about the BBC, we need to think of it as being embedded within these other sets of institutions and relationships. You know, you can think about the BBC separately, but once you dig down to it, you realise that, you know, political journalists have a set of social relationships with with these other institutions of which the BBC itself is has has relationships with. So there's sort of whole nexus to kind of influence that goes on there. Uh, to the most mundane thing of like a booker at the BBC will be like, who do we, you know, who's on the left? Well, there's Owen Jones, he's on the left. There's Jeremy Corbyn, there's John McDonnell and Diane Abbott. There's Chris Williamson and who else? You know, yeah. and, and, and for them, those people on the left aren't really part of their world. So, I don't know, I've now forgotten what the question was. What you just said speaks to what, you know, the, the Miliband take on the state, the fact that the state isn't a thing, it's a, as you said, a nexus of different institutions which are all sort of interrelated, mostly through social class and, and sort of background. Um, and we'll, and that's one of the interesting things that Jeremy Corbyn's proposing. And they, they've done a few class breakdowns of the BBC since then. I just want to quickly, Tom, just briefly talk about the structure and organisation of the BBC because I think that's an easy, well, not an easy way. Um, well, you know, you've you've made you've explained it, which is is very useful. It's a way of opening up and explaining to people how you know the BBC's actual relationship to the state. So, in in terms of like how it's organised and sort of a hierarchy, I mean, you said it had a board of governors, which was superseded in 2000 by the BBC Trust. It's now been superseded again. Oh, said a I think it was, yeah, I think it was 2004, although I could be wrong about that, that the BBC Trust comes in. But yeah, so, and then last year, or year before, yeah, what's now called the Unitary Board. But these, um, I mean, as you said, as we said before about the Royal Charter, these people are formally, you know, appointed by the Crown, but your book says, you know, in reality, they're essentially political appointees appointed by the ruling political party of the day. Yeah. So, and one of the interesting things, um, given the fact the BBC has been so noticeably right-wing, of late, I mean, just talk us through the structure of the board and, and how people are appointed, and and maybe how that's changed over time. <clears throat> so, well, actually, that's not really changed that much. So, traditionally, what you had was a the board of governors for a long, long time, which was basically they were they were seen as a sort of trustee of the public interest, right? And they they weren't involved in day to day running of the BBC, but they were sort of oversightery function going on there. And they were appointed by yeah by the government. So as you say, like formally by the Crown, but what but this basically means it's the sort of residue of, you know, the monarch's executive powers, basically, that is just number 10, and the, and the, the, you know, special advisors and all of the rest of the senior civil servants, who, through the Privy Council, will appoint the chair of the BBC and members of the Board of Governors. Now, what traditionally, very early on, they, these were universally all from classic establishment kind of backgrounds, right? So they all went to the particular, you know, these particular public schools and all the rest of it. They be became slightly more diverse as uh, as Britain became slightly more equal. So as you had greater social mobility, you had, uh, but the the structures remained in place, which was basically the director general was appointed by this board that was appointed by the crown, 
now on top of that, you have the Royal Charter that you mentioned earlier, which is issued every 10 years, which means that essentially the BBC has to go back to the government and say, can we continue to exist for another period of 10 years, right? It's always kept on that um, that, that precarious kind of footing. And on top of that, you have the licence fee. Now, the licence fee, which is the main funding mechanism for the BBC, I mean, the BBC sort of supporters say, oh, this is good because it means the BBC is paid for by the public but not by the, the government. Um, but, of course, when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense because actually all taxes are paid for by the public. <laughs> um, it's, and then the government decides how to distribute the funding. Well, the BBC's funding is paid for by licensee and it's set a tax set by the government, right? And the, the government will set the, the license fee in negotiation with the BBC. So if the government doesn't like the BBC, it will cut them uh, their funding. And that's what, what Conservative governments have usually done. In part, I mean, for lots of different reasons, but often because uh, they want to sort of curtail its political independence and um, sometimes its sort of ambitions, you know, so that they can represent sort of private media interests that don't like the BBC. So th these are a whole set of formal relationships that tie the BBC to the state, basically. Um, and then and then below that, you have the sort of class uh, makeup of the people at the top of the BBC and the senior journalists. They tend to be drawn from a similar sort of class strata as the people who populate privileged positions elsewhere in the British state or the British establishment. Uh, they tend to be paid a lot of money, particularly since the 1980s when the BBC became more marketised. And then the stuff that we talked about already in terms of the, the, the sort of formal and informal relationships with the with the political system that tend to influence routine reporting and news and current affairs programming and all of that you know they just you know just aesthetically if you think of the today program how it sounds and how the people i one thing i always remember about this is years ago i was sort of a silly story really but i was listening to uh, the today program and they had a guy on and they were going to introduce him as a Liberal Democrat MP for such and such a place. And he came on and they introduced him and he just had a, he sounded like a sort of cheeky chap with a slightly northern accent. And immediately I was like, something's gone wrong. He got something wrong accent. And then they cut him out and they said, we're very sorry. That wasn't whoever it was. Um, we've misidentified him. But it was so obvious, you know, it was interesting, like how incongruous that was just, and it was just a normal bloke on the Today programme. Just walked off the street by accident, like... Yeah, they would just call it one, but you know, it was like a silly sort of thing. But you know, I think that's quite, yeah, I think that's quite revealing. You know, how really, how narrow the kind of, you know, the the types of voices that they have are. And if you're used to that, then you just get used to it. But it can be little moments like that where it's like, hold on, this is a very strange situation. You know, we've got quite a diverse country, and we have a very narrow social strata. You know, I say this as somebody who you know comes from a middle class background and probably sounds more like the people on the BBC than I'd like to. Um, we think all you know, English people sound the same, so yeah. it doesn't, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> like the same as well. I can't tell them apart. Yeah, I could be anyone. Yeah. No, but I mean, I mean, I always think that you know, you turn on the radio in particular, and you you flick through the channels, and it's kind of um, it sums up the problems of the BBC. I mean, you've got Radio One, like horrible low culture, which is like terrible, and and then you know, Radio Two, sort of smug middle of the road rubbish, and then Radio Four is just just cloying and and as you said, so so posh. It's ridiculous. If it's not, you know, um, the politics shows, it's comedy politics shows and power oh, shows. I'm amazed Radio 4 has got any comedy at all. I've <laughs> never laughed at it. Best thing um, about Radio 4, though, is that guy who's just like, and now the Jibbing Broadcast. He's like super low voice, like. Oh, yeah, I like that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lady. But, um, yeah, so you talk about funding. Just briefly, Tom, you speak about how the BBC was increasingly commercialised in the 80s, and you sort of said that, you know, essentially that the Tories do kind of want, have, have always wanted to privatise the BBC or at least help corporate 
interest sort of undermine it. Is that is that definitely the case? Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, it's, actually, it's a slightly complicated picture because the, the, when the Tories start to um, target the BBC, which is relatively late, actually, in terms of what we're going to do about this organisation, there are yeah. different kinds of interests at play. So... Thatcher wants the BBC to take advertising because what she thinks yeah. is we can increase the sort of commercial culture, we can change, we can institute a cultural shift at the BBC, we can start to increase its revenue from other sources and then cut back on the license fees. So that's her thinking. And then there are, but the thing is, the advertising industry, which is an important part of the sort of Thatcherite um, class coalition, doesn't really want that because, it, well, the advertising industry does, but the, the people who, who buy advertising don't. So the newspapers don't want that. Thatcher does, the advertising interest, so people like Sarchi and Sarchi are quite involved in these kind of networks. There's a very good book about this by Tom Burns where he, he talks about the different interests, concrete interests that are involved in lobbying on the BBC. Then you've got people like the Institute for Economic Affairs that you mentioned earlier, which is sort of like, you know, the intellectuals, if you go as far as to call them that, of the, of, of the Thatcherite projects. And they they have their own plans and uh, about what you do about the, B the BBC and, and culture in general. And actually, some of the work they do on this is the much more sort of sophisticated end of their output. And what they say, well, what happens is Thatcher appoints this guy called Alan Peacock to head an inquiry into the BBC. And she wants him to recommend that they take advertising. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he recommends that, well, he says, actually, it's quite interesting. He says, if, we, if the BBC takes advertising, all that happens is with advertising is that media corporations sell their audience to corporations. That's not going to create a consumer market, which is correct, actually. And it's an unusual sort of intellectual honesty from those sorts of people. So what they say you need to do is use new cable technology to create a diverse consumer market. And they say, in order to do that, we need to create an actual private se functional private sector. So they, they recommend that BBC's money is taken from program production and put into external commissioning, i.e. money takes from, is, is the BBC becomes a commissioner of programs rather than a program maker. And that leads to the sort of cottage industry of private production companies. So now what you see on the mm -hmm. BBC is often made in the private sector and paid for by us. And a lot of those people were either sort of these entrepreneurial types or they were already independent producers or people from the BBC leave, leave the BBC and use their existing relationships with people at the BBC to get higher wages. So there's this gradual process of commercialization that goes on from the 1990s. But there's something else that happens. So there's this guy called John Burt who joins the BBC uh, immediately after um, Alistair Milne is forced out by uh, the, the Thatcher appointed chair. He's replaced by John Burr, and John Burr used to hang out at the Institute for Economic Affairs in the 1970s, very committed neoliberal. I mean, no media scholars seem to have noted this, even though he says it in his autobiography. But he, you know, he was going for lunch with Keith, Keith Joseph and hanging out with Peter Jay, who was a very important, influential figure in promoting monetarism. He was friends, well, he says he's friends with everybody, but anyway, he claims to be friends with Milton Friedman. And so what John Byrd does is he tries to maintain the BBC's public status, right? So the assumption is that everyone, oh, the Tories want to prioritise the BBC. They don't really want to do that. Or at least some of them do, some of them don't. What they actually want to do is marketise the BBC, to so take some of that public money and give it to the private sector to create a market. And actually, of course, this is how markets actually function. Actually, the private sector likes public money. They don't want to get rid of yeah. that. They want to get their hands on the money. And that's more or less what happened with the BBC in combination with a very radical 
commercial reorganization of the BBC based on what was then called new public management, which yeah. sort of now everyone's very familiar with from working universities and stuff, which em embedding market-like incentives into your working practices, everything has to be priced, everything, every Time. interaction... Yeah, targets. Every interaction you have with a, a colleague is costed, and <laughs> and so what happens is this huge expansion in um, financial bureaucracy at the BBC, accountants and consultants sure. and the rest of it. As is always the case when you introduce market reforms, a huge increase in wasteful bureaucracy and the rest yeah. of it. So that all goes on at the BBC. So there's this really radical overhaul. But the point is that in G. Seaton's account, this is sort of seen as, oh, British pragmatism sort of muddled on through and won the day and the BBC was saved from Thatcher. And, and no, this is a complete misunderstanding of what actually happened. What happened at the BBC was very much at the heart of the neoliberal project. It was about, and this was what late Thatcherism was about, right? What are we going to do about the British state? And the answer wasn't, shrink it it was reorganize the state on the basis of market principles take public money give it to corporations make sure the state the more democratized sections of the state are marketized in order to assure that, that they're not sort of captured by political interests or whatever i mean that's that was the rhetoric of course they get captured by different sorts of political interests i.e you know lobbyists and corporate interests and the rest of it so all of that stuff was working its way through the bbc in the 1990s and in combination with that you had this shift, very explicit and deliberate shift towards more pro-business reporting. And this was, you know, I talk about a lot in the book, so I guess I don't go into too much detail, but Greg Dyke, he was a sort of nice guy, really, he was a sort of new, new Labour appointee at the BBC and Director General. He eventually gets kicked out over um, BBC's reporting on Iraq, but he, he apologises to the, the CBI and, you know, says, you know, we've got business wrong, we're sorry we reported it as, you know, unions say this, business say that, you know, you guys are world creators and so on, and we're going to sort this stuff out. And the first thing I'm going to do is appoint Jeff Randall, who's this, you know, sort of shock jock type right-wing journalist from The Telegraph, and um, we're going to shake things up. So it's very explicit, you know, and, and they kicked out all of the all the labor reporters and the industrial reporters and replaced them with business and economics reporters. And they were sort of a mix. You had the sort of high-minded Evan Davis type Oxbridge yeah. um, PPE people. And then you've got the people who are doing sort of populist business programming. You know, you're sitting at home looking at your shares and you own your own house and, you know, we're a market society now kind of thing. So there was a big culture change. So recently, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, come out and uh, set, put out some plans to, um, as is reported, to end government control of the BBC. And was it today, I think, the um, that the, uh, let's just see what it was called, on open democracy that you published something alongside with everyone else? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there's this um, new thinking for the British economy uh, ebook, free ebook that's been published today, which has got a number of chapters, and um, one of which I wrote with Dan Hind, who I present a podcast with uh, called Media Democracy. And so we have a, a short chapter um, laying out a reform agenda for democratic communications, as as we call it. And and this is, um, I mean, really, it's expanding on a set of ideas which we've already been working on and uh, written about elsewhere. On the BBC specifically, I had uh, chaired a working group of the Media Reform Coalition that had produced what was called draft proposals for the future of the BBC, in which we advocated uh, the democratisation of the BBC, uh, the decentralisation, the and elections to the BBC board. So some of the proposals there got picked up in Corbyn's speech, it seems, which I was, you know, obviously very pleased about. Did you um, give a shout out? I was not. I, I tell you, who did give a shout out to was uh, on the British Digital Corporation. Anyway, was um, oh, I forgot his name now. Uh, James Harding, who was uh, 
who who suggested that if the BBC was formed in now, like it was in the 1920s, we would create the British Digital Corporation, which is something that Dan and I have written about more extensively. But it's interesting that he said that. He's a very conservative sort of figure that he's reputedly very close to George Osborne. The thing is, with that speech that Corbyn made, you know, the BBC, I think, quite liked elements of it because they were talking about, he was talking about taxing, you know, Google and Facebook and uh, preserving public service broadcasting, which is just music to the BBC's ears. I, I think the bit that I suspect they didn't like as much was the idea of democratising its governance. And, which, and, yeah, and, and the class thing as well, which they lost their shit about, didn't they? They did, they did. But actually, I don't think the BBC would have been too bothered about that. It was that it was more the, the yeah. right press that went apeshit over it, because the BBC was is already publishing a lot of those figures yeah. for its staff. So all Corbyn was asking for was... I mean, this is a, a, a sort of side note, but the um, the BBC has, because of what we talked about earlier about contracting out of, of programming, a lot of the people who are working in um, the independent sector, we don't have data on those people who are making BBC programmes. And the unions, um, so, so Bechtu has been working on this, have um, a concern that the, the those people aren't as represent even less representative than the people working at the BBC because precarious labour markets are very bad for people of colour and women in particular. Um, so that part, I mean, that's the funny thing is the Telegraph didn't even seem to know that the BBC was already collecting this data on on social class, which, by the way, isn't the least bit controversial. I mean, a because the BBC is doing a lot of it anyway, and b because Ofcom had called for it like a, yeah. I think a year or two ago anyway. The the, the, the democratization stuff, um, there was a, an article in The Guardian by somebody who formerly worked for the BBC. I think it was Roger Mosey, or I may have got that name wrong. Um, and he was just like, oh, this, you know, this wouldn't work, this idea of democracy. It sounds good, but, you know, practically it would be too difficult to implement, which is, you know, sort of what you'd expect them to say, really. But I think the other recommendations were, were very good on the BBC. So we've talked about the very straightforward mechanisms of government control. You just get rid of them, right? So you get yeah. rid of the government control over the licensee. You get rid of you give you get rid of the royal charter and put the BBC on the statutory footing, and you you don't allow the BBC to set sorry the government to set the BBC's rate at the license fee, and you get rid of the power of appointments, and and then the BBC can be what it says it is, you know, what it says on the tin, which is an independent broadcast. Now that doesn't mean we're going to get it's not going to get rid of all the problems, but it seems to me that the fact that, you know, those aren't being taken up and, and, and embraced by people seems to me to be very strange because if you're in favour of an independent broadcaster, to you'd think you would accept proposals which just straightforwardly make the broadcaster more independent. I think the speech was very clever, though, because it sort of put people on the wrong foot because the right wanted to sort of say that, that, that Corbyn was going to take over the BBC. Yeah. That's sort of their default position, but actually, you know, the... The proposals were completely out of sync with that. So, you know, Corbyn proposed that the BBC becomes more independent. I mean, of course, a lot of these journalists were under a lot of time pressure and, you know, probably aren't the most honest or intelligent of people. So they just ran that anyway. You know, the left wants to march through the BBC and throw people into the gulags or whatever. But, um, yeah, so eventually, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's a funny thing, you know, like uh, the, the responses to that, I mean, at least on Twitter, I shouldn't be on Twitter because it's not good for you, really, but um, the, the... Definitely not good for anyone, I don't think. No, the, the, but there have been these sort of series of Twitter spats around the social class, the BBC response to Owen Jones as well. And then you see, like, whenever these things sort of happen, whenever they talk about the media, you'll get right-wing journalists sort of saying, oh, when these people come to power, we'll be off to the gulag and sort of talking to, you know... Um, Who's that guy who's saying, I'm fear for my life for Corbyn government, I'm going to flee the country? There were, well, there were sort of a few of them half-joking about it. But I mean, I, wow. I think actually that... 
a lot of these conservative journalists, like, uh, I mean, it's easy to make fun of them, and I think people should. Yeah. But also, I think it does, I think the idea of them being an oppressed does sustain, it is energizing for them. And so yeah. I, I think, you know, like, it's funny, but actually, I think these sort of persecution fantasies do perform some sort of role. You know, like the idea that oh, yeah. they are brave figures who are going to be oppressed by a future government. You know, they quite enjoy that. And you used to see that all the time. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, like, um, well, you mentioned my work on Islamophobia earlier. I mean, you saw this with the sort of pro-war left, you know, like Nick Cohen types as well. Yeah. Like, often... That it, when I if I say something about Islamophobia, you'll have people saying, "Oh, you know, like wait till the Islamists are in power in this country." Yeah. You know, they won't care; they'll just chop off your head, kind of thing. It's quite um, weird the way they center themselves, and they almost like fetishize how much they're going to be oppressed. And yeah, it, and, I, yeah. and I I don't know if they're just projecting the fact that obviously they've got the easiest, most comfortable <laughs> life ever, just shilling for the establishment. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's it's one. It's a really weird dynamic. This like, firstly, I think they assume that they're the number one enemy of the left, you know, yeah. rather than just a, just essentially a, a glorified troll with a column, you know, that no one really yeah. cares about. But yeah, the Islamophobic thing is is really strange, isn't it? The they sort of fetishize this, like, oh well, when when that happens, when Sharia law is implemented, I'll be the first to go, or whatever. And yeah, it's first against the that's right. I mean, but that you know, that's very straightforward, really, because you think if, if you're if you're politically sustained by the idea that you're opposing totalitarianism, which is basically yeah. what underlines their project, and in the same way, someone like Dan Hodges, you're you're opposing essentially a totalitarian, intolerant sort of movement, which is the way that they see the left and the way yeah. that they see Muslims. Then obviously, it follows that you have to believe that these people you're opposing. <laughs> in the case of Muslims, aren't an oppressed, racialized group, that they are actually a threat to, 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 to your rights. And, and, and if, if they're given an inch, then they take your heads. And I think there's something similar with the, 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 the response to the left from, you know, the, the sort of journalists to the right, where you, you have to have some sort of moral purpose to oppose this movement. So then you have to believe that, you know, some sort of righteousness to, to what you're doing. Um, otherwise, I mean, I don't know. We're descending into speculating into the well, minds no, right. and the rest of them. But, um... I never like talking about, like, I mean, I sort of, for my sanity, had to unfollow a bunch of these people because it's just It doesn't bizarre. make any difference, though, because on Twitter, I see these people because people I follow yeah. follow them. So it doesn't mm. even make any difference. And even then, people just quote tweet them at me. So I'm just like, oh, yeah. my God. No, <laughs> the, the things on the New Socialist about the sort of collective gaslighting of of the left by, you know, the, the right who've sort of given up any pretense of of telling the truth, you know, on Twitter, it's just what Dan Hodges taking the most ridiculous, outlandish sort of lie and just repeating it and things. I thought it was quite useful. Right, Tom, is there anything you want to add or we haven't covered that you'd like to just Any talk shout about? Any shout-outs you'd like to give? Um, shout-out to Dan Hind, my, uh, <laughs> you my media us, like, he's one of the democracy first people to follow us. Yeah, he's good. Um, so, uh, Dan, uh, my co-presenter on the podcast, and we've written stuff together on media reform. He's been working on these areas for years. If people are interested in specific reform proposals, which we didn't go through in any detail, but in any case, I think, you know, it will be dragging things out a bit. Um, if you Google me reform coalition drop proposals for BBC reform, then you'll see a, a, a bunch of proposals there. And, you know, if people are interested in a broader reform agenda for the media, do check out the open democracy thing. Sorry, I'm just plugging everything now. Well, I'm we'll not link them within the episode description and on Twitter. 
Yeah, um, but great. Yeah, um, I need to head off. But, yeah, um, you're, the, you're the first first guest we've had that's dressed up in a, a suit and tie for the first occasion as well. Yeah, well, um, I'll see if I can up the ante. If I do have a repeat appearance, I'll be in a DJ or something. Yeah, yeah. As, I, as I used to present the news. Yeah, man, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, so yeah, basically, by Tom's book, we'll be uh, we'll be tweeting a link to it. It's really fantastic, and hopefully, having him on again to talk about his sort of forthcoming work on conspiracy theories which uh, just sounds really really interesting and why they're all correct <laughs> yeah why we didn't land on the moon why yeah. uh, Finland isn't real and the earth is flat uh, chemtrails <laughs> no I think that it's about you know Chomsky speaks about it and stuff but so it'll be in that vein it'll be really interesting so as ever how does this relate to, to Wales I mean we did um, an episode on the BBC and the media deficit in Wales previously so you know as if you basically pick a topic we've probably already covered it because we're amazing so but we'll just briefly talk about that because um that what tom given us is a fantastic overall understanding and general understanding of the bbc but there hasn't been that much academic well i don't think there's been any academic research on the relationship between the bbc and the devolved nations you know wales scotland and northern ireland and by that what i mean is uh, it's not just there has been a relationship of how much sort of coverage the bbc gives wales but what Tom's book sort of forces us to consider is the relationship between the BBC and structure, existing structures of power in Wales. So, you know, for example, what is the relationship between the BBC and the Welsh government? You know, because obviously Tom's book is about the relationship between the BBC and the British state. So given that you know, we've got devolution in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, it's time to consider, well, what is the relationship between the BBC's devolved apparatus? So the BBC obviously has its own, you know, sort of autonomous um, location in, in Landaf and in uh, whatever the offices in, in Edinburgh or Glasgow maybe, and in Northern Ireland. So to consider, you know, what is the relationship between the devolved bits of the BBC and the devolved institutions that they serve? Do they speak truth to power, or does it mimic the relationship of the central BBC with the central British state? And that's actually quite a complicated role, um, because what's happened since, um, you know, since like the Scots-India ref in 2014, Obviously, pretty much every Scottish nationalist has sort of seen the BBC as being a, a tool for the for the integrity of the British state and is the BBC as anti-nationalist and so on. And, and I guess, I mean, my personal suspicion is the BBC is basically will always favour sort of the establishment, um, just like it favours the Tory, t- tends to favour the Tories in, in Westminster, in Wales, where Labour have been in power for 100 years. The BBC tends to sort of koto to the the Labour government, uh, in terms of it's quite uncritical. Um, it will run on the BBC website. It'll the, the the story will basically be a vox pop, and it'll be the the opinion of the Welsh Labour government. And it's all that's it. It's kind of just reporting on it. It's giving the government a chance to sort of champion their line. There isn't any um, there isn't any critical analysis of it because you know the only critical analysis really in Wales comes from us. You know, Ethan at Nation and. Um, you know, Martin Shipton, really. Um, and we got um, Senate and all Augie. Oh, yeah, sorry, and Senate Home, which is class, um, and you should read. But it's really important because, you know, obviously since devolution, the, you know, the media deficit in Wales is really well known, and obviously, and ironically, Wales has become even more in, uh, dependent than it was previously on BBC coverage because you know, commercial newspapers just won't cover Wales. There was that, <laughs> there was that vignette from the guy from Trinity Mirror, I think, when the Welsh government sort of interviewed him in the some like scrutiny committee and or some you know the media committee and he, they were like why won't you cover Wales and he was like 
because it's not interesting next. Um, um, <laughs> and, so, and, and so since then, you know, obviously the, we're sort of dependent on the BBC and the BBC's sort of, the BBC's output for Wales is is, is so limited. You know, it's the you know, the five minute Welsh news at six and I think we're 12 or one and then at 10 o'clock or six and six o'clock, or no, six o'clock news, we get like a half an hour roundup of BBC Wales news, but that's it. But the point is, we are more and more dependent it, on BBC it, coverage. Isn't um, it basically the news you've just seen, but with a Welsh flavour as well? Uh, no, well, it depends. But I mean, obviously, it's a it's a news roundup. But I mean, it's it's very brief um, and not particularly detailed. And it, and obviously, you know, half an hour a night to cover a whole country. And and you know, and and what happens? The issue is, what happens if you don't? watch BBC you know a lot of people just watch Sky or whatever and so the chances are as we know that most people will spend the majority of their waking lives not hearing any news about Wales not consuming any news about Wales whatsoever and so yeah I mean it's just like a classic academic cop-out you know more research in this field is needed but um citation but it is I mean we do need to do more research on the BBC and and, and what I should have said in, in in Tom's when we were chatting to Tom People shit on you know media studies and and like media analysis and media sociology, but it's actually incredibly labour intensive um, form of research because what it actually literally entails is like watching shows and shows and shows and clocking up like recording how often someone talks about something else and how much time is spent given to a particular subject. So it's all quantified and you know it's all uh, so that's what we need. Someone needs to do when it comes to the BBC's output and and it's. Not just its output, because we know how much the output is, but how, you know, BBC Wales, you know, how does it treat, for example, stories about the Welsh government? Does it cover them enough? Um, for example, things like the Carl Sargent case, you know, whose voices does it privilege? Whose voices does it marginalise? So what is the, the power dynamic within the BB, within BBC Wales? What is quite clear that the BBC um, Wales in BBC Cymru is actually far more radical and progressive than BBC Wales in English. But, you know, that's not particularly hard. What else? Oh, yeah, so this is the thing. So my suspicion is that BBC Wales basically um, will, because of time constraints, not because they're not particularly critical people, but because of time constraints, you know, their sort of reporting model tends to be, we'll just get the, you know, the, we'll just interview, say, Vaughan Gethin. Mm-hmm. So there's a health crisis. You know, Vaughan Gethin gets to speak, and he says, actually, this is fine. And then that's the story because we've only got five minutes. Um, and so because of the time constraints, I think it necessarily means you have to privilege the government's voice and you're not going to get dissenting voices on. Um, and if you look at the BBC website, the, stru- the editorial structure is, you know, it'll be something, something about like, um, say it's like a ambulance times or hospital waiting lists. There'll be, the first bit will be, you know, Welsh government has come under criticism for this perhaps. And then it'll be a Labour spokesman or Vaughan Gerthing said this. And at the end, it'll say, Applied Cymru spokesman said this. But in terms of how that is editorialised and, and how that's read, one voice and the government voice will be basically given priority. But again, I don't, you know, I think that's probably because they've only got, you know, they've got, they've got a limited time. Although what I will say, of late, there have been some really peculiar uh, editorial decisions at BBC Wales, particularly BBC Wales website, um, and particularly when it comes to reporting economics, which is what obviously Tom's, PhD was about and in particular they are saying things like joblessness falls in Wales so unemployment falls in Wales and that'll be the headline news and as we all know 
that's basically bollocks because I mean even if unemployment has fallen you know wages in Wales have continued to stagnate uh, and and if you dig deeper into those statistics you'll see that more and more people are on zero hours or temporary part-time contracts so it's essentially the statistics have been massaged they've been moved off unemployment benefit into like voluntary sector, either yeah. voluntary work you know um, where you have to do unpaid labor or to a zero hours contract work to get you off the but that, what's really strange recently is that these stories, which paint quite a rosy picture of Welsh economy, are getting more and more frequent at a time when the BBC editors well know, just like everyone else, that the picture in Wales is actually really bad. And so what they'll do, they'll lead with this misleading sort of good statistic. You know, that's the one they've picked out. But that's what's getting a bit more sinister, because that's, I think, a very conscious decision to, to try to spin the economics picture in Wales as being good when it is anything but. So maybe there is more going on. I mean, historically, the relationship between the, the BBC in Wales and the dominant political force, you know, the Welsh Labour Party, is, has been seen to be uh, oppositional. You know, there's been continual assertions by sociologists and you know, Labourist historians that on the one hand, you've got like the Labour Party and the Labour sort of establishment and the Labour Party apparatus in Wales. And on the other, you've got the BBC in Wales, which has been historically nationalistic, quite pro Welsh language, culturally, and so on and so forth, and they've been sort of counterposed as almost two competing forces, whereas what I, I mean, I've always, I mean, since devolution, the impression I get, and so my sort of cosmetic uh, reading of it without doing any sort of content analysis would be that the BBC, you know, since devolution, have actually been very friendly towards the Welsh Labour government and, and have developed uh, a, a relationship with the Welsh government that the BBC have in London with the the Westminster government that that it's that type of dynamic rather than being sort of uh, I would I mean I personally believe that the way Plaid Cymru are treated it tends to be far harsher you know like if there's a scandal in Plaid Cymru that's like amplified far more than a scandal within the Labour Party in Wales and obviously you've got like a revolving door I would say between Labour politicians and BBC Wales you know Dice Smith was in you know, obviously a producer in BBC Wales Owen Smith was a producer in and had a, you know, journalist in BBC Wales, and we've gone through the the stories that he used to run against Plaid and so on and so forth. So I think that it's a it's a close relationship rather than a a conflictual one. Okay, shouts this week to all our fantastic subscribers. We did a bit of a, a drive, like a pledge drive, a funding drive, rather to sort of give us we wash cars to, to, to give us a bit more money on Patreon, um, which is always a really uncomfortable thing to do. But um, a lot of pe- a lot more people have subscribed. I think we probably doubled the money we get. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, honestly, buzzing off it. We're really, really grateful to you all. Oh, shout out to my boys, Dav, Winkler, and uh, Nath. Is that Henry Winkler? <laughs> Mate, Al, absolute ledge. Um, but went up to London for their thirtieth. Um, yes, they had a game of football for the first time ever, which uh, first time ever, first time in ages, <laughs> uh, which was great. And I thought I was going to die because I was so unfit, but it was just a, an awesome, awesome day. And I also got to see my niece again. So, thanks for to Tim and. Sarah as well for hosting me. Bit of a personal one there. Mm. Shout out to me. Another personal one. Because I'm amazing. Shout out to Leanne Wood for all the uh, basically grafting and uh, thankless tasks she's been doing um, over the last however many years implied. But now the dawn of a new era is upon us. Dun, dun, dun. Hail Adam. Oh yeah. And um, keep your eyes peeled for weekly installments of uh, our new sitcom no, a new gritty cop drama. Yeah. The Price to Pay. Yeah. Starring Adam Price. Yeah, as Price. As Price. In The Price a, to Pay. In The Price to Pay. Starring Adam Price. Hail Adam. 
One of the eight kings of hell. We have looked to the northwest and called you in. We've corrected your first female body and give you now this healthy male host. We reject the Trinity and pray devoutly to you, great Payman. Give us your knowledge of all secret things. Bring us honor, wealth, and good familiars. Bind all men to our will as we have bound ourselves for now and ever to yours. Hail, Payman! <laughs> <laughs>